the session, they all say, raise your hand and tell me what you want to be when you grow up. And all the girls are, you know, they're scared to raise their hands. And the ones that do, they say, I don't know, maybe, maybe a teacher, maybe, you know. And then at the end, they're like, girls are raising their hand. They're like, I want to be a doctor. Wow. You know, and it was like, wow. And, and so they realize how important what they've done has been. And since then, there have been several Nepali women who have climbed Everest and sort of joined their program. They take um, women who are... Hi, friends. That's Alyssa Ronek, a senior writer at ESPN, the magazine, ESPNW, and ESPN.com. Alyssa published her first book in 2007 and joined ESPN's broadcast team in 2012. She recently published an ESPN the Magazine cover story of Olympic snowboard sensation Chloe Kim. I'm big mountain skier Lindsay Dyer, and this is Showing Up, a conversation athlete to athlete with those so-called unicorns who have done the impossible. I've looked up to Alyssa as a voice for so many action sports athletes, not just females, but all and learned about her journey from young, talented cheerleader from the Midwest to big-time journalist at the biggest magazine we all know of in the action sports industry. She's traveled to six continents, seven Olympics, and countless Super Bowls, and she's made it all there on her own ambition. This is an awesome conversation, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did having it. So do you mind just introducing yourself? And yeah, how most people would know who you are. Uh, <laughs> like, what would you say yeah. is your main title? Uh, my name is Alyssa Ronick. I'm a senior writer for ESPN. And that means a lot of things. And over, I've, I've been at ESPN for 15 years, which is sort of hard for me to believe because I think I'm, I still feel 25. And I definitely did not start at ESPN when I was 10. So uh, that has meant a lot of things over the years. Right now, what it means is I, I write a lot of long-form features. I write um, a lot of event coverage. Um, I cover primarily action sports, adventure sports, outdoor sports, the Olympics, tennis. I started out in football, and um, I think I'm going to start writing a little more football again, which I, I miss. I like the X's and O's of covering, of covering the NFL. And there's a lot going on in the NFL yeah, there is. to talk about. Yeah. Um, so it's sort of a wide breadth of things. Um, I do a bit of television. You know, when we, when we write stories, I work at a really cool company that um, gives you the opportunity to sort of learn new skills live on television. So I spent a lot of time uh, as a TV reporter for the X Games, um, hosting action sports shows. I was the pit reporter for Rallycross for a couple of years. And now I uh, produce features that go along with some of the stories I tell and then go on, say, Sports Center outside the lines and talk about those stories. It's pretty incredible. So I grew up, Alyssa's voice was our voice of the action sports world. You might not feel that way, right? But like, yeah, that's amazing. That's but like, like <laughs> ESPN is huge, yeah. right? And to, to us in the action sports world, we're, we're kind of still like this underdog of, the, totally. of those broader sports. Mm -hmm. And you have been a, a name and a voice um, that have helped tell that story, tell our stories to a broader audience. You know, that, that ESPN, you know, holds a lot of weight. I, I don't even know if you know, like, what... Um, I'm sure... I can't even imagine, you know, like, that's one reason why I wanted you on the podcast is to really ask your day today. Because, of course, um, when you see your name come up around... Um, information or a story, I'm going to read it, like, because I respect it. Um, but also knowing, I can't imagine 
the road and the path to get there. So, I mean, did you grow up wanting to be a writer, wanting to work in this arena? Yes. So I, I always joke that when I look back, you know, it's sort of hard to know um, sort of really what you wanted to be when you were younger. But when I look back, it was like, you know, when I was like three or four, I wanted to be a rodeo queen, but I was always writing. And where did you, know? you grow up? So so um, until I was 11 in Western Pennsylvania. Wow. Uh, Flatlander. A, a far, you know, farm farm town. We lived actually in a little house on my grandparents, a Belgian horse farm until I was about six or seven. And then, yeah, really, really small, small town, Western PA. And then we moved to South Florida, which is much flatter. Whoa. Um, and so, but when I look back, it's like, yeah, I wanted to be an astronaut. I wanted to be a circus performer, but there, but I was always writing. And so as I started to, like in, in high school, I started to understand like, oh, I think I want to do the one consistent thing I've always been doing. So but why? what does that mean? And so when I got to college, I, I, I figured, you know, I'm going to go, I'm going to study journalism because I knew that the University of Florida had an excellent journalism program. And I felt like if I learn how to find a story and report it well, and I'm old enough that I did not go to college with a computer. I went to a computer lab. Um, I graduated college in 1999 and I didn't have a cell phone when I graduated. So you really learned how to report. Because I was not just going to the Google. There was no Google. And so I felt like if I just knew how to find a great story, no matter what kind of writing I wanted to go into, I, I hopefully would have a good background. And my sophomore year, my magazine teacher had this rule that you were not allowed to write about sports. And about three quarters of the way through the semester, he called me into his office and he was like, somehow you find a loophole every assignment. It's sort of not sports, but it's sort of sports. And he was like, do you know that's a job? Like, I see you walk in here with Sport Magazine in your backpack and, and Sports Illustrated, and then a little later, sports, you know, ESPN the Magazine. He was like, that's a job that you can do. And it had never really, it just, I'd never made that connection. Like, oh. And then from that point on, I was interning at the Gainesville Sun and the Williston Sun and the St. Pete Times and writing. And at, from that point on, I was just, I real, and I never really thought that I was writing about sports. I thought I was writing about amazing people who happened to play sports. Right. And so it was, it was putting the story these two first. things I love together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Where do you think that that came from, though, subconsciously? That it, was your dad a big role model? Was your mom like? My parents were both big role models, and I I think the writing part of it came from storytelling. Like my, you know, if you look at my report cards from when I was a kid. They would, my parents were a huge influence. And, and I will say, like, from the time I was little, my biggest memories my, from being young are my parents reading to me, like, every single night, multiple books. And I would be like, read another one, read another one. So I was being inundated with stories. But then, you know, when you looked at my report cards, it'd be like, A, 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 Alyssa talks too much. A, 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 Alyssa needs to stop talking. You know, all satisfactories. We had to move Alyssa five times because she won't stop talking. And I always tell the story that when I was in third grade, I had this incredible teacher, Mrs. Pfeiffer, and she was the first person who wrote on my report card, Alyssa loves to tell stories. Mm. And suddenly it wasn't this thing that I was being put in the corner for or being moved around for. It was this thing that she celebrated. And so I, she put me in charge of doing the morning announcements. So I got to go to the front office and I had a little microphone and she was like, get it out. Just sit in front of this microphone, wow. and here's the thing, is just talk, and then I would get to class, and I'd be fine. Wow. But she sort of understood, like, just let her get it out, or she is going to talk all through my class. That's so cool. And that she's still a friend. It. Like, we are still, we still keep in touch, 
And she, you know, I tell her how meaningful she was in my life in third grade. Right. I think a lot of people might relate to that. Yeah. The, the things that you you got slapped on the wrist for right. um, might actually be some of your greatest gifts. And if you have the right, right people to, to see it and, and nurture it. Right. If someone has too much energy or, you know, they're talking too much or whatever it might be, it's like they're drawing on their notebook, you know, instead of yelling at them, you have, have a budding artist in your right. classroom, right? right? And so it's just that little bit of a shift of, Guidance. of saying, this is not something you should be ashamed of and be getting in trouble for, but this is something we should actually really nurture. Maybe you're good at this. And mm-hmm. I always think back to like, wow, this is what I do for a living now. And maybe if no one had, had, um, recognize that and just made me feel good about it instead of bad, who knows, maybe I wouldn't be doing this. Mm, That's so cool. All I want to do is ask you all your favorite (laughs) stories then. (laughs) Here's a microphone (laughs) and, and you like to talk, take it away. Like what are some of the favorite stories that you've written about or or that you feel like you're having an impact and, and sharing? Man, there's so many, you know, and there's one that I, I will get to, but I, I do feel like the, the first story, the first person who really impacted me and I'm, he, you know, he is, it's, it's a guy. So I know we're talking about a lot of women's stories, but not necessarily. Um, yeah. Don't, don't. He is still a dear friend to this day. And it was, a, was the first story I wrote on Travis Pastrana. And then we ended up writing a book together a couple of years later. Huh. And I had started covering action sports and it, it's not my background. You know, I didn't, I grew up in a really stick and ball household. I was a gymnast. So I loved, I love thinking in like tricks and the way your body moves and contorts. And, um, but I, you know, I played softball and ran track and I, I just, and I, I got to college and I was always very envious of my friends who surfed and snowboarded and it just wasn't something I had access to. And so as soon as I moved to New York out of college, I bought a snowboard and a surfboard and I started sort of learning. And when I had the opportunity at ESPN, they were moving, uh, I'd been there for a year working as a copy editor and writing about football. And they were moving expn.com to New York. And so I read every book on action sports I could find, sort of faked my way through the interview a little bit, but I was like, I am obsessed with these sports. I was like, these athletes are incredible and amazing and I feel like they are Every story I was reading in the media was like, they're crazy, they're right. wild, they're wacky. Adrenaline like, junkies. Yeah, and I was like, that makes zero sense. And so Travis was the first athlete that I'd spent time with, and I remember standing, and I'd been reading all about him, right? And he's this like otherworldly, superhuman person. And the first time I met him, I'm standing there, and he's this nerdy, gangly... At the time, he was probably 17 or 18, and I was like, wait, this is the guy that I've been reading about? Like, someone is not getting at the core of who this person is if I'm having a a completely different experience in person. And so I said to him, I was like, you're, there's, and, but I also knew there was some, he was being very polite and kind, but he was just like, the last thing I want to be doing is talking to you right now. Mm -hmm. And so I said, like, I just, I want to know more about you. Can I come out to your house and interview you? Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, no problem. And I remember getting to this place in Maryland. And at the time, I'm probably 26, 27. And his dad says to me, yeah, my son doesn't give interviews. He hates journalists, you know. And at the end of the weekend, we, I had four and a half hours of tape. And he was like, it was like one of those magical thinkers I'd ever sat and spoken with. And I was like, this is what, what people aren't getting to. That's exactly and why so, I wanted to start this podcast is because of all those times I saw people interviewing my friends and not asking them the real questions. And you can see it in all of our eyes, myself included. Like, 
you, you don't care who I really am and why I really do this. So yeah, I'll give you the cookie cutter answer that fits right. your soundbite. But so many of us are doing something f- for reasons far deeper or more dynamic than you would imagine. Right. And so I, I wanted to, to get that down before some, some of my friends are gone, you know, before people might be gone. So, yeah. When I, when I, <laughs> that was my pitch to Travis, actually, after we'd done some stories and, and then I, I was standing in the, in the, in the Staples Center when he landed the double backflip. And I remember thinking, I'm having a moment right now. I don't know what it is, but something's going on in the back corner of my brain. And I, and then later I realized, oh my gosh, like the second best person in the world at what he did was sitting in the corner praying because he didn't believe what Travis was about to do was possible. And I was like, what in the world makes this one human being in the whole world believe something is possible that no one else does? Right. You know, that that's Chuck Yeager, that's Magellan, right? Like right. what is going on in his brain? And that moment had to impact every person, whether some guy left there and asked the girl out who he'd been right. sh- scared to ask he or some believe. woman went and asked for a raise. I was like, you are changed in that moment. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, oh, what if he could do that? telling a story in a book. And I remember flying to Madrid to an X-Fighters, and that was my pitch. I was like, look, you might, you might outlive all of us, but just in case, someone should get this down because you have like an incredible story, and he has, a, and really, Travis is an incredible writer. Mm. Um, Sometimes he has a hard time like putting it into words, but mm-hmm. he would sit and send me these like long emails at night. He's an incredible writer, an incredible thinker. Right. So many and I was, like, are people, so intelligent. Yeah. People need to to hear this story. And so th- I think that experience made me go like this. And I, you know, I really started gravitating away from all the other sports I was covering. And I was just like, these are the people whose stories I need to tell. And and I think because I was coming from that place of sh- complete curiosity and um, genuine interest and, and passion that people said yes. Right. You know, where I think even in the past, some, you know, even if ESPN had a negative connotation in some ways to some sports because, uh, you know, they felt we were this big company that didn't understand them. And so people were coming in and just writing about them in a way that wasn't authentic. And so it took me a while. It took me, you know, it was sort of dependent on the sport, um, how hard it was to sort of break in and, and start getting the interviews with the people I wanted and the stories to tell, but, um, what do you think you did learn most from Pastrana? Like, what is he here to teach the world? Obviously he's doing it on the physical and is it breaking belief systems of what's possible? I think so. I think, I think the, the magic about Travis is the first time I saw someone come out to his, to his, um, Compound. house, his compound, (laughs) Pastrana land as he calls it. And Lindsay, his wife and, and, want to learn a backflip. But this kid was like, you know, he was a dirt bike kid. He would never flip, never hit a ramp. And within half a day, he was doing backflips. And it was because Travis Pastrana told him he could do it. Right. And there was this magic in that, that like, he, he knew that he was, he was teaching him it and he also believed in him. And he really, if, you know, Travis will push people to do things they shouldn't be doing. But if he's pushing someone to do something most of the time, he believes you're ready to do it. It's up to you to believe in yourself to take the next steps. But there was a magic in that, you know? And I, and I think that's part of it is that that um, enthusiasm for whatever it is you're doing, not caring what people think. Um, I don't know anyone. All these you know, sports he, yeah, are so yeah. off the beaten path. It's not football. There isn't like this trajectory of, of what you do Absolutely. And, and what it's going to look like. You have no blueprint. 
Mm-hmm. So you're going out and you're you're creating the map, right? And mm-hmm. that also, people who are the first people to do things extend the map for the rest of the world. And that is, it's really easy to be the second person to do something. Right. But to be the first person to do something is incredible. And, and, and then I, you know, and then I realized like, oh, there, there's just person after person after person who had that same sort of story, that same, how, and however it was, whether, and then I became fascinated with like, I want to interview everyone's parents right. because you are doing something right that you have created this like strong willed person who completely believes in themselves and also wants the other thing that I find is, is, you know, exactly what you're doing right here. Great action sports athletes don't just want to do it and, and be applauded for it and, and then move on. They want to bring the whole sport with them. They want to, you know, they want to make everyone better. You know, Trav has done all the things he's done. Now he has Nitro Circus and his obsession is providing platforms and opportunities for everyone else to be great. And that is awesome. Yeah. Are you finding, so after him, who are the other people that you could say fall into this category and what are consistent things that you're finding? Are, are there consistencies in their parents? Are there consistencies in, in them? Even body type. Like I know so many of my, the best athletes I know, they are exactly that. They're not like the big, strong, gnarly guys. They're kind of, they're, they're skinny and they're right. small. Right. Like, yeah. I don't think there's any consistency in body type. I think I learned really quickly. It's all about if you watched, you know, most of these guys and women walk around, it, it's painful. Mm-hmm. Um, you all wreck wreck yourselves mm-hmm. on a pretty consistent basis. So um, it's all about what's from the neck up. You know, it's all about if you don't break that, and I think we will. all have. <laughs> <laughs> but that's but that's where all the magic is. Um, gosh, so many so many athletes. I mean, yourself included. I mean, any I think anyone who's going out into the backcountry. Um, you know, the Jeremy Jones and Travis Rice's of the world, um, you know, and surfing people like Steph Gilmore and um, Kella Kennelly and, and um, Maya and anyone who's going to places no one has gone before them, right? And then who provide opportunities for other women, um, other backcountry athletes to come and, and do the thing they're doing, right? Um, and so... Yeah, so I sort of started my bucket list of athletes I wanted to interview and stories I wanted to tell, and then stories just sort of come to you. I mean, the most recent example of, I mean, the story that I I think I am most proud of, and I say that thinking I'm going to leave here and have think of 10 others, is a story on these seven Nepalese girls who became, in the course of our... Um, of, of our time together and reporting became the first Nepali women to summit the seven summits. But before that, they, they became the most successful all-female expedition on Everest. And, the, and they were 10 at the time. And these were 10 women, eight of them. Two of them were women who, who were quite uh, accomplished climbers. But the other eight you know, the Shaili, the sort of leader of them, always always says to me, like, I always dreamed of jumping a rope or kicking a ball. Mm-hmm. They had done nothing in this in sports. In Nepal, women do not have opportunities for sports. Women are extremely oppressed. Um, and one of the girls at 14 had run away from home on the eve of her arranged marriage. Um, one was uh, lived on a farm, had never even seen a mountain, had never heard of Everest. You know, we grew up looking at it in books and think, dreaming of a maybe I'll go climb Everest. No, or if not, they could do it, I could do it. Yeah, not for these girls. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, two Sherpas who had daughters, sort of started realizing, like, oh, daughters are rad, and 
they are there's no opportunity for them. And, and so they put together this expedition. They put out a call, and in various ways, these girls heard about it. They trained for one year, and when they got to Everest, anyone who saw them, you know, laughed at them, made fun, just said, "Oh, they're all going to die." Were they also in dresses? I remember imagery no, of no. They were. Do you know what I'm referring to? I, I recently saw. This was in team, 2008 when they climbed Everest. Okay, I think this was in South America. A team of all women. Um, Native women that were doing it in their native apparel, oh, like cool. in the dresses. Yeah, it was insane. That was one thing. So I went with them to Nepal, and we did. We sort of recreated their first hike to base camp because at the time, you know, they had all said goodbye to their families. We didn't know if they were going to come back alive, but they just knew that this was bigger than them. And they're, I mean, they walked to, to how could, how could base they camp heads down. They just and so this time they were able to look around and take in the beauty, and we were able to talk. Um, that's just, that's a really good point is people who are really doing this, you're not screaming it from the mountaintops because frankly, like you might be pushing some boundaries that are really upsetting to people. Right. Um, when these, and, and sort of the, the, my favorite thing about going places with these women is I'm five foot three and I tower them. Wow. And these women climbed Everest. So they always, you know, they talk to a lot of kids in schools and they say, look, the mountain doesn't change because of how tall you are. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't kneel down because I'm four foot 10. I had to be better. I had to adjust my ability to the mountain. And so for these kids who are about the same height, they're just blown away. We right. went to some, we went to um, the Edmund Hillary school um, up in that region. And these kids were just, their eyes were like, what, you know? And so at the beginning of the class or the beginning of this, the session, they all say, raise your hand and tell me what you want to be when you grow up. And all the girls are, you know, they're scared to raise their hands. And the ones that do, they say, I don't know, maybe, maybe a teacher, maybe, a, you know. And then at the end, they're like, girls are raising their hand. They're like, I want to be a doctor. Wow. You know, and it was like, wow. And, and so they realize how important what they've done has been. And since then, there have been several Nepali women who have climbed Everest and, sort of joined their program. They take um, women who are um, saved from sex trafficking and they take them out into the outdoors and they, they take them hiking and climbing, mountain biking. And when the earthquakes happened in 2015, those seven women led the recovery and restoration efforts in their country because when when um, the UN and organizations were coming in, they couldn't they didn't have to access certain areas. And here are these seven women who are like, oh, we're actually super accomplished mountaineers now. Right. We're guiding on Denali. We'll we'll help you. And wow. so they really they have been such an integral. I mean, they're incredible leaders in in Nepal. And they're just they're they're just seven little magical beings. And I'm so privileged of the opportunity to tell their story. How culturally were they able to pull that off? Was it because of their fathers, like kind of? No, it, I mean, every single one of them, it was because of something innate within them. They all will say the same thing. Like they, they, there was something about me when I was young that I believed when, you know, my family said, you're too ugly to, um, to find a husband. So we're going to educate you because um, you're worthless. That wow. something inside of Asha said, no, I'm actually really awesome. And so when she heard about that, she just knew she was meant for something. Every one of them have that same story. I just knew I was better than I was being told I was. I knew when I was standing in the mirror in this dress and I'm 14 years old and I'm supposed to be married the next morning, she stole some money from her dad's wallet, got on a bus and 
and escaped and joined, ended up joining the police. I mean, it was, it, I mean, their stories are unbelievable. Right. Um, Where can we find these stories? <laughs> ESPN.com. Yeah. ESPNW.com. What would we Google? So that, that story I would Google um, after the seven summits. Very and ESPNW, cool. yeah. And it's it's also a really pretty story with all kinds of yeah. moving and videos. And um, that was, it was such a cool expedition because they said, once they said yes, it was, okay, I need the right photographer. I need the right Sherpa. I need the right this. And so um, I was, we were able to hire Robert Frost, who is just one of the most incredible wow. outdoor photographers, one of Jimmy Chin's like um, right-hand guys. And, um, and uh, Danuru Sherpa, who is Conrad Aker's like go-to guy, and so I was able to reach out to all these guys and say, "I've this is clearly not my world. Um, who do we take with us?" And I remember also saying to them, "I want men who because there weren't women available." And so I said, "Okay, if if this if the photographer is is a man, obviously our Sherpa is going to be a man. I want men who like women mm-hmm. because this is not going to work otherwise." Mm-hmm. And I mean, I can't. I mean, they were just the two most perfect humans to be with these seven women. Yeah, it, was, it just worked out so perfectly. And It's so cool that you had the authority on that too. You know, they're uh, coming from the other side of people who would like to tell that story, but you don't know where or how to get that across. Right. And to have someone in your role say, hey, this is important and there's funding for it and we're going to make it happen and I'm demanding people that support women. Like that's different. That is new. And just like the fact that there is, there's interest in it. Um, and it, I mean, was that easy or difficult to get? Because, I mean, in even in five, ten years ago, would that story have been greenlit? That's a good question. I, I don't know. I, I Probably not. You know, we uh, launched ESPNW eight, eight or nine years ago, and um, the editor at the time, Joy Russo, was just absolutely 100% behind it. And then... Um, it was a long reporting period from the time that we were like, this looks amazing, to uh, December 2013, going with them to Nepal. And then the story didn't run until um, summer of 2015. And so over that time, I mean, she had to support me, yeah, finding the right people, going to Nepal, putting together, you know, 12 people on like a sort of mini expedition up to base camp. And and um, and then she... and then another editor had to then continue supporting it. And then um, the editor of the ESPN, the magazine, had to support putting it into the magazine and running it online. So um, I think at the beginning, it might not have because it took a lot of, you know, now looking back, it's like this was the most incredible story, but we didn't know that going in. And so uh, far, there wasn't necessarily, you don't you don't have the readership or, or the proof that the readership is there and it wants it. So Well, to- and, you know, and and she had, Joy had seen like... Um, one sentence somewhere that she sent to me. And so I started Googling and I'm like, oh, Outside Magazine probably wrote about this or, you know, this climbing magazine or this. And it was nowhere. And and I was like, well, that's a problem, you know. And 2008 was an interesting year on Everest because it was the Olympic year and there were a lot of protests. And, um, but still, they were the most successful all-female expedition in the history of Everest. One of the women at the time, Nimdoma, didn't even know it, but she was the youngest woman ever to summit Everest. Wow. She's since been eclipsed by a couple of women. But that was noteworthy, and mm-hmm. no one had written about it. Wow. So there wasn't proof that there was a readership for it, but we had started ESPNW, which was enabling us to greenlight stories that maybe, you know, wouldn't have if, if it was just like, I need pages in the magazine or, mm-hmm. you know, I need time on TV. 
um, which was really awesome. And, and I think that's true of a lot of stories. I mean, the stories we've been able to tell at ESPNW is, I mean, it's, it's incredible. Right, right. So let's go back to your story. Okay. <laughs> so like you, 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 you're writing, you're telling stories, like give us a trajectory of how you came from the Flatlander girl, <laughs> you know? I, I overheard you yesterday talking about how you you started somewhere and to learn, and within a year they wanted to make you editor. Like, just. yeah, it was within a couple of years. Yeah, I when I was in college, there was sort of a moment where you have to start thinking about where you're actually going to get a job. And I've been working in newspapers, so I was sort of thinking newspapers. I was thinking um, I would try and get an internship at Sports Illustrated, or you know, I know the magazines I'm reading. And I was in the, I was uh, on the cheerleading team at the University of Florida and I was in the bathroom of the gym that we trained at and I saw a magazine called American Cheerleader Magazine. And it was clearly, you know, um, aimed at high school athletes. And I thought, well, this is rad. And I started doing some research on it and had a huge readership. It seemed like a really um, stable magazine. It was in New York City, which is where I knew the sports magazines and ESPN the magazine was at. <clears throat> and, but I also saw a lot of places. Were you a cheerleader? In it. Yeah, yeah. You in, were. So was college. that was that kind yeah. of your? The, what sports did you play? I was a gymnast when I was, you know, until you sort of realize, like, I think maybe thirteen, I stopped competitive gymnastics. You're either going to the Olympics or you're not, right? And you're like, this yeah, is yeah. I was a ballerina. Really, same yeah. Thing. This is really tough on your body. Mm -hmm. um, and then um, I played softball my whole life. That was my real passion. Catcher and shortstop. Nice. So you're fast. Fast, yes. And I ran I ran track. I ran the 100, 200, and third leg of, third leg of the four by one. Nice. Um, yeah, and so I ran track. Uh, I was a sprinter. And then in college, um, I, I figured out I wanted to go to Florida. They didn't have a softball team at the time. And I'd gotten into cheerleading a little bit through gymnastics when I was um, in high school and tried out for the team, made it, and um, it was a cool, I was obsessed with sports, so it was a cool way to be around football and basketball, and... Can I ask a tough question? Yeah. Like, was there any, was there motivation around cute boys? Like, I couldn't be a cheerleader because I sucked at all of those things, like... No, there was no motivation around cute boys. I wouldn't say that the guys didn't have motivation around being around cute girls. Mm -hmm. So, University of Florida was a co-ed team, and it was a big program, you know, two or 300 people try out for seven spots, um, if not a couple thousand. So it was, it was one of the toughest things I've ever done, like the physicality of that and yeah. the creativity of it. But no, there was absolutely no, I had no, I loved the, I loved partner stunning, which is when you see a man and a girl, like guy and a girl tossing her around and she's like doing all these cool things. It was also a way to keep doing gymnastics without doing mm -hmm. apparatus. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. Sometimes no, it had I, nothing I to look, do with guys. I just, <laughs> I came from, uh, you know, a small Idaho school. Yeah. And that's what I, I had seen. You know, and I think depending on where you came from, right. it's taken seriously or it's not. And yeah. so I always Florida, wondered. It's yeah. highly competitive. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, it. But did you ever struggle with the fact that, like, you're on the sidelines of, like, the bigger game? No, because I was also covering those games as a writer. I was um, competing myself in the thing that I did. And see, I wanted to play no. the football. Like I, I didn't want to go I be played, a spectator. I played. I, pl I was the quarterback of our powder puff team. Nice. You know, I the first time I was ever on 
TV was in college, you know, where there was a guy on our team who would come over and was like, where's the girl with the arm? And we'd throw, you know, just throw 20, 30-yard passes back how, and forth. How did you other. learn how to throw? Because a oh, lot of girls dad. can't throw. Yeah. Oh, gotcha. yeah. Like, it was like, you need to throw, learn, no, you need to know how to throw a baseball, a football, change the oil in your car, you know, change a tire. Like, it was not a boy and girl thing. It was just like, these are things people know. So, yeah, I could throw a tight spiral from the time I was like a little kid. That's awesome. Yeah. And and growing up playing softball too, I mean, did you playing have, shortstop if you don't have an arm or catcher, right? So, you know, so it's a, not that far of a stretch from throwing. Do you football. have siblings in your family? Yes, I have one sister. Well, my my apologies. Um, <laughs> growing up in Idaho, <laughs> the level of athleticism of the cheerleaders, like, oh, and, and, I, and I understand any... that. You know, at the end of the day, it's like I under, I mean, I've never been someone who do does something because I care what other people think about it. So it was the most incredible. I had the best freaking time in college. It was the most athletic, challenging thing I'd ever done. I still, you know, it, it's a weird thing because you just leave college and it's not like you can ever do it again, um, unless you sort of go down some p- path. But it's not like you can go ask your neighbor, like, hey, throw me around. You're just sort of done with it. But I absolutely, I think it was, yeah, I loved it. It was awesome. It taught you how to be on an actual team with men and women and um, respect one another and work together in a way that there's no other team that really is like that. I got to travel all over the country um, as a broke college student. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, I absolutely loved it. You know, and at the end of the day, when I think back, you know, right, you know, I remember my teacher saying, write about what you know. I saw this magazine and I was like, man, I could make this magazine so much better. And I wrote a letter to the editor and told her that, you know, the brashness of being 22. And she hired me and I moved to New York and um, I worked there for two years. And then, yeah, you know, I, it was sort of a moment of, you know, this is your life and, you know, you're, you're going to be the editor of this magazine. And I had a panic attack and was like, but no, like, this is just, you know, being a little bit naive. Like, no, I told my editor in chief, you know, I'm going to do this for a little while and then I'm going to go, you know, spread my wings and jump onto the next lily pad. And she was like, no, what? You know, then, you know, you're, you're planning to leave. And I was like, not now, but soon, you know, and she's like, well, then now Mm -hmm. is good for me, you know? And so, you know, two weeks later I had no job and, and went out into the freelance world and hustled and, um, what did that look like? I, you know, it's like you learn, you send 10, you send out 10 pitches for one story. So, um, I'm a, I'm a good hustler, you know, in college, I think I always had three jobs at a time while, you know, being in the athletic program full time and waking up, you know, you don't need, I, I've, I'm convinced you don't need sleep until you turn 30. <laughs> Once I turned 30, I was like, oh, I need like a lot of sleep now. I have to catch up in the last 30 years. <laughs> um, yeah, it's just hustling, hustling. And so it teaches you how to have good ideas, how to really understand the publication you're pitching to, um, how to, how to take rejection over and over and over and over and still keep asking for more. And then I got an interview at ESPN to be a copy editor. And was it because of a pitch, or how did you? No, get that in? It, uh, it's a good question. I I'm trying to remember. I was trying to remember this yesterday. I had definitely sent my resume to a bunch of people, but I think a friend of mine's, um, one of my friends' friends, had worked as an intern there, and so I met someone she had interned for, and gave my resume, and you know, and, and I was doing this everywhere, and then. Um, Christian Rogers, who ran um, the copy edit department. And about, I can't remember, six months, a year later, I remember on my answering machine at my house in New York, you know, hey, do you remember me? I'm, you know, Christian. It's like, of course I remember you. 
Um, and I remember just thinking, like, if I can get my foot in the door, if I can get a job cleaning the toilets at ESPN, I am going to convince you that this place will be better because I'm here. And, um, yeah, somehow I did that. <laughs> and got a, got a part-time job that in over 15 years has sort of just snowballed into other things. So what made you go and and see the value in action sports versus the typical ESPN route of of those, what do you call them? I don't know, traditional sports? Yeah, yeah. football, tennis. Well, like I said, I started out, I grew up in a really sports-heavy family, and being from Pittsburgh initially, um, a huge football family, and I'm obsessive football fan. And in college, um, thinking that was, the, that was the sport I wanted to write about, sure. I covered high school football, and... In high school, you keep your own stats. No one's coming around like, you know, we have it really, we're very pampered. You cover the NFL and someone comes around every quarter and they hand you the stat sheet. Wow. In high school, you, you do it all yourself. And it was an awesome learning experience. And then I used to, you know, the, the video game Madden football? Sure. My roommates would play Madden football and I would s sit and cover their video games like it was a real game. And then I would interview them after... The game as if they were actually, you know, my was that your idea? Yeah, it was just a way to practice because uh -huh. I was like, well, no one's letting me cover the NFL as like <laughs> some sophomore in college. So I would cover these games and then I'd write up game stories and we'd put them up on the board in our house. And it was like a big thing that like, you know, whatever, Tom was Mike Tomlin and Corey was Bill Belichick and, you know, whoever's <laughs> team had won. And, and you were the writer. You were yeah. ESPN. <laughs> so, so, so when I got there, it was really about, I really wanted to be a football writer and that's what I was doing. And like I said, this opportunity came up in action sports and I initially, and I just immediately was like, oh my gosh, like these stories are incredible. These humans are incredible. You will never forget the first time someone jumps a dirt bike over your head and does a backflip. And, and I just immediately thought I can be one of a million football writers or I could be like the one person who does this right. Mm. And I also just was having way more fun. You know, in the NFL, you're, you know, you're going through seven PR people, especially as a young new person, to get a quote from one person. And, you know, and I'm texting athletes and going and spending a week with them and sitting in the kitchen with their mom and, and telling really deep stories, you know, really early in my career. So I was like, this is amazing, mm -hmm. you know? And, and it just, um, over the years, it was more and more of that and less and less of the other. Tell me the, how ESPNW came to be. I always wondered, like, what's behind it? As much as I'd love to believe it's, it's for doing the right thing because we decide something. Yeah. But, but there's got to be money behind it, right? Like, well, so it, how do you validate? It was, the, it, was the, it was the vision of Laura Gentili, who's our senior vice president, um, and who w was overseeing W for a long time. And, you know, it really was her convincing the company that there was something missing and that, you know, a, a really hardcore football fan who's a woman, you know, I might come to ESPN and feel like I'm being completely served. But there are a lot of women who are not being served by ESPN, and a lot of women, who, women and men who are fans of women, women's athletics. You know, we weren't covering women's sports at the level we are now, mm -hmm. and men and women love women's sports. Right, they're all the same. At, right at the root, they're all the same story. Right. And, and, and women who, you know, like a lot of my friends who are like, I don't follow football. I don't like football. You mm -hmm. know, my, one of my best friends, Jenny, you know, it was always, we would sort of joke. She would like, on Sundays, she's like, we can watch your, watch football if we also drink mimosas and, you know, do something else. And so, but then 
along the way, I start telling her stories about the athletes. And so you realize, okay, women are really story-driven. They're people-driven. If they know these people and they're not just numbers and, and X's and O's, they start really connecting with any sport. And so maybe there's a way to serve women that we're not doing yet. And so um, even before we had the website, we had the ESPNW conference as a way to start connecting women in the industry and supporting women in the industry. And really, yeah, John Skipper, our president, I mean, it came from a completely um, honest place. Of, and yeah, you want to, you know, if you're looking at a company and you're like, how can we grow um, our brand? How can we grow anything? And you sure. realize that half the population might not be being served to the extent they could be. Yeah, there's a market that's, that's just you waiting. Know, that seems like a pretty easy thing to green light. And, and, you know, I think over the last eight years, it's incredible how much better we've become as a site, as as a brand. The conference I just came from it was, you know, I mean, you just leave there like lit on fire. Yeah, I got to go, I don't, I don't know, three, four years mm -hmm. ago. And just, I mean, to sit in the same room as Gabrielle Reese and all of my soccer heroes and, oh my God, that was right, such right. a treat. And, and to see that I'm in the same room as the most incredible tennis soccer like holy moly yeah yeah <laughs> um that was that was a a pinch myself moment and it's also sure. now you know it's also evolved to it's it's those those that same level of women but also the CEOs and executives and authors and and so it's it's not just all of our heroes in sports but the it's also our known. female heroes um, behind in, the scenes. Yeah, in, in mm -hmm. industry and in business. Can and you talk about more of those? Um, maybe share some light on some of those stories that we don't know. Like you said, the senior executive who like was knocking on the door on behalf of telling these stories. Any Anyone else that that deserves some recognition of working her way up on the, the business side? Um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of them. I, I, um, yeah. I mean, I really enjoyed at the, the last day of the W Summit, Susan Casey, who... Um, is an author. She wrote The Wave. Um, she's had three or four bestsellers all, all around the ocean. And um, and she, I, I mean, I first remember her as a young person pitching her stories when she was the editor-in-chief of Sports Illustrated for Women, which lasted far too long. Mm. She was um, editor at Outside, and then when Outside tried to make for a little while a women's magazine, she ran that. You know, she was the person greenlighting... Um, uh, into thin air, and I think she read Krakauer's manuscript before anyone. I mean, she was a force in publishing um, at a time there just weren't a lot of women doing that. And so she uh, gave, she has a new book out, and so she did like a sort of a um, an intimate talk up on stage with Alison Glock, who's one of our writers. Um, she writes for a million, a million people and also writes for TV, and she's someone who I look up to. And so it was just, a, for me, it was a really cool conversation because um, these are two incredibly accomplished women who do what I do and do it really, really well and um, are, are, you know, people that I, who I aspire to be like. And so that was really cool. And, and I think, and those are the kind of conversations we've, started having at the at the W Summit, you know, Jeannie Buss from the Lakers. Um, yeah, just so many. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of blanking on because of the breadth of women. Shamika Holdsclaw, who's, uh, you know, arguably the greatest woman basketball player ever. So uh, where, now where is, is it going? A, like now that those conversations are happening, now that these conferences where people can connect and mm -hmm. where, what's next? And, well, well, and also, why did those early attempts to start you know, women's sports magazines not work. 
I think advertising. I think they just didn't understand how to. It was it was like a tough balance of wanting to make the magazine you wanted to make and making advertisers happy. And it it just and also you know she shared some stories about how you know the different companies were bought and sold and then the new owner comes in and was like okay we're going to consolidate and well we'll get rid of this magazine. Um, there's still a real need for it and a real desire for it. Um, I think hopefully we're doing a little bit of that at ESPNW, but um, yeah it's it was I think it was tough and it's probably even tougher in this market when it's you know it's tough to keep a um, a print magazine afloat anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and where it's going, I think one of the coolest conversations people are having are like, okay, how can there be, how can we support more women? You know, when you walk into a boardroom and you want to see 50, 50, right. You mm-hmm. want to see like someone put up a stat that it was like 4% of CEOs are women. Right. And it was like, oh, okay. I mean, I in guess all of upper management, I guess that's not that bad. And then they put up the next stat said, um, 5% of CEOs are named John. And it was like, oh, wow, there are actually more CEOs named John than there are women. That's bad. That's really bad. So it's really about having these, trying to make these women as visible as possible. You know, I'm mm-hmm. a big believer. If you see it, you can be it. Yeah. And so the more, and, and getting young girls into politics, into STEM, into the arts, into sports writing, um, into writing in general, right? And so, and getting women into the boardroom and in leadership positions. So I think that is like the most important mission of of all of this is just more, more, more so opportunities. H- how have you been able to do it? Because I think those all sound great and we all know that those are the solutions, but like um, as it stands, it's not always some cut and dry way to get there. I, I, I find in watching how guys work, there is a brotherhood and somebody, um, gets to a high position and then he needs, he needs someone that he trusts by his side. It's not necessarily about the skill set that that person brings. It's, I like this guy. And I think one of the struggles that we have as women is oftentimes if, if there is someone that gets a high enough position, um, in your, in what you're finding and, and then the way that you've done it, are you finding that women are bringing other women up, and then how, how can I don't know that we're going to do it the same way because we're not we're different. Um, we are, and I think that's a really astute um, observation of um, how you know a lot of upper management and business works. But yes, I do find that, and that's exactly what I'm saying. Like the more women are in those positions, the more women they can bring up with them. But and is, I do are you find, oh yeah, happen? absolutely, you are. absolutely, yeah, one hundred percent. And I think that's something that women women have to be supportive of other women. Women can be a huge roadblock for other women. Yeah, I am really fortunate to work at a company where I feel like my biggest advocates are other women, and I cannot cheerlead more for other women. You know, when my when my peers write a great story. It is not a negative reflection on me. I want to post it. I want them to sign the cover of the magazine that their story was on. I want um, I want to tweet it out and put it on Facebook and I want more people to see it. I want people to know like, hey, that cover story on Aaron Rodgers, the NFL player, was written by a woman and she's a badass. Mm-hmm. And so I do think... Have and, you and seen I, examples though of the alternative? Of... 
where maybe someone had an opportunity to to where they they were threatened other than well yeah i think we've all seen up. we've all seen that in our career right women who are threatened by other women but i think that that but even men that changing. are threatened by up and coming sure yeah mm-hmm. absolutely and i think as you get older you start to be more aware of those things i think when i was younger i was like what mm-hmm. there's no like being a woman doesn't have you any, can do anything you no, want yeah there's mm-hmm. nothing negative like you know people would always ask we are women in sports and it's like yeah so what i have this unique perspective and point of view and my storytelling is different and then as you get older you realize absolutely there's you know you you walk into a locker room and someone calls you little lady and you go oh yep this is still real and you know I think you can either just you can either focus on it and talk it to death or you can just say okay I'm going to spend more time writing stories about women I'm going to cover women's sports better I'm going to do all the things to elevate women so those comments become fewer and fewer and fewer. I am going to remember that words matter and the way we speak about women matters, the way we write about women matters. Do you find, too, though, that controversy helps? Like, obviously, this this, uh, comment that was just made is huge, right, all of a sudden. Uh, Do you find that... I find that if I post something that has a hint of controversy around this subject, Mm -hmm. it goes through the roof. But if I am consistently posting positive stories, just like anyone, they're they're just like flat. Do you you notice that at all? Yeah. You know, the Cam Newton's comment, what's interesting about it is the way that people are reacting. And then obviously the woman he was speaking to, she comes with her own baggage. You know, and I think, you know, I've read a couple of really great things in the past couple of days, one by a friend, Katie Barnes at W, who was saying, you know, everything that we experience in life is is based on like our own baggage and who thinks we carries the most, the most, right? So in that moment, um, he, you know, maybe he was reacting to the fact that he has been um, treated wrongly for the color of his skin and she's been treated wrongly for the fact that she's a woman and who brings more baggage to that conversation. Um, and then I saw, you know, I saw on Outside the Lines another colleague, Kate Fagan, say something that I was like, yes, that is, that is the thing that I wanted to hear about this, where it's like, you know, she's getting hit up. Hey, can you come on this show and this show and talk about, you know, why women should be in the locker room, why we should exist, why should we should be sports writers? And she was like, at the same time, game four of the WNBA finals was going on. Why don't we just talk about that? Exactly. And so instead, just show why women are amazing and talk about who the best player is. Right. Instead of debating whether or not we should exist. Right. And where why there's we're, tension, that's where it gets the attention. Yeah. And so... Yeah, but I, but I do think um, it's key to have opportunity to create opportunities to show young girls, um, not just tell them you can be anything you want. Well, that doesn't mean anything if they don't know what they could be, right? You can be anything you want, okay. But if you see women doing all these things, then there's a larger um, pool to choose from. Oh, I yeah. can be any of these things that I see other women doing. That's why I made an all ski female ski film, which was yeah, which was incredible. For exactly that. Now they can see, like, oh, I could go be a ski patroller. I could be right. I could be a professional athlete. There's so many more options. And not just be the one girl, one token girl in a group of guys. Right. Or the groupie at the bottom, like we right. used to see in the old Warren Millers. Right. Yeah. Um, how's Google changed journalism? Like like you said, you started when it was you and tape and and now you can you can do a lot without without that? I don't know if it's just Google. I think the internet in general and social media has changed journalism a lot in a couple of ways. In one way, it's made it a lot easier. Um, You can do a lot from your desk. Um, The reason I ask is because, so for that up and coming young journalist who's like, this is what I want to be, 
you know, what advice would you give to him or her? Oh, so those are two different questions. I think the way for me, the way that the internet and social media has changed journalism is you have to be so much more cautious and just be cautious of of caring to be the first. You know, news breaks and I, I want to be the first. And are you? But are you accurate? Mm. To me, that's still what matters. I don't need to be first. I don't need to break a story. I need to make sure that anything I'm putting out there is is right. Mm. I would rather write a long-form feature two months later than tweet out something that may or may not be correct. Mm. Um, and I, that's probably some, that's one piece of advice. The other is read. There is no better advice for aspiring writers than to read. Read people you love, read people you don't like, read great journalism, read bad journalism, read you know the rag mags, read the great mags. I mean, just read in the same way that an artist... Um, you know, or an architect walks around a city and takes and takes in what they love, what they don't like, and and it allows you to start forming who you are and what your voice sounds like. Um, and and I think also you have to be open to the fact that media is changing constantly, and so you have to be willing to to keep changing with it and not be too precious about whatever it is you how you sort of see yourself. So if I you know it started out just like I'm a magazine journalist and that was sort of the precious thing and all along the way it's it's about writing for dot com writing short covering copy editing events copy editing um you know social media podcasts tv all these different things if you're not willing to try all of those things you're less employable right mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. really storytelling is storytelling no matter how you're doing it and so i think just being open and, and being curious um I think that's really, really good advice. I know you're going into your seventh year of reporting on the Olympics mm-hmm. in front of the camera. How did that come about? So at the Olympics, I do a little bit of everything. So at ESPN, we don't have the Olympic contract. It's an NBC uh, contract. So mostly what I'm doing is writing. But then what we get to do is go um, on Sports Center or Good Morning America and talk about um, what it is we're reporting on. And, you know, in 2006 was my first Olympics in Torino. I was covering snowboarding, um, and I just wanted to be a part of it. I wasn't, at that, that year, I wasn't even part of our, like, official coverage team. Um, and I just said, I'll get myself over there, just get me a credential. And I just wanted to um, cover the snowboarding events. And so I did that, and then the next Olympics was 08. And from then on, I've been officially the our coverage team. And so it's I'm It's been so cool and, to watch you there. Thank like, you. Yeah. Thank you. And so, yeah, I mean, it was born out of just a complete passion for those sports and summer Olympics. I mean, growing up in gymnastics and track and field, I rode horses as a kid, uh, playing softball. I mean, these are did all... Did you want to be an Olympian? You know... <sighs> There's probably a point in my life where like every little kid thinks they're going to be Mary Lou Retton if you've ever, you know, stood on a balance beam. Mm-hmm. But but it wasn't I never had that same like, you know, I wrote down on a piece of paper, I'm going to be I'm going to win an Olympic medal. Um, but did it ever just have you ever had that surreal moment of like holy moly though? Yes, I, I mean I, in the in the 08 Olympics when I realized, oh, you know, like I I you know, I joke like I I I if you you know, they say like if you can't if you can't do teach, I was like, if you can't quite write. <laughs> so I was like, I was like, my sports didn't get me there, but I'm an Olympic caliber writer. Mm-hmm. So, you know, yeah, the first time, I mean, I was in Beijing, I was covering gymnastics 
And, you know, the next morning I woke up and I saw, I saw on you know, the front page of ESPN.com, I had written a story about the women's all around. And so I was like, you know, and you, you click on it and the dateline says Beijing in capital letters and then a story and it has my name on it. And I was like, you know, there was a moment where I was like, holy cow, like that woman's in Beijing and she gets to tell the whole world who won the women's all around. And then I was like, oh, that's me. I'm in China right now and I'm doing that. Like, this is really cool. Wow. And yeah, I've definitely never lost that sort of like awe at the fact that like, you know, less and less do you need to click on a story to know what happened. You know, you're getting it in your Twitter feed immediately, but that I get to be in the center of the action. Yeah, what is that you know? like? It's, like, Yeah, it's my favorite part of it is, especially when I was doing sideline reporting at like the X Games or, you know, when you get to be the first person, you know, and, and I'm standing there thinking, you know, and I've done a little bit of football sideline reporting as well. And you're thinking, okay, what does everyone at home watching this athlete I got want one to question. know, right? right? What does everyone want to know? And then I get to be the person who like runs out and into the middle of the action and asks them, <laughs> you know, like, how cool is that? I mean, it's, it's my favorite thing. It's the same. It feels like the same adrenaline rush as when you, when, you know, you're competing at something mm -hmm. and a lot in, you know, in a lot of ways you are, like you're competing with all the other writers, all the other journalists, and we all have our own little friendly competition going on. Like who's going to get the story? Who's sure. going to get the different angle? You know, who's going to write the best piece off of this, which is, you know, and, and I get to go and like be around like the greatest, some of the greatest sports writers. Um, what do you think it takes the to Olympics. be the best sports writer? Um, curiosity and passion and the ability to sort of look at something from a different angle, you know, and sometimes that means literally if I'm struggling with what in the world am I going to say about this, I will literally go and stand in an odd place and watch the, the event. From a different perspective. Yeah, and it, like the physical different perspective, maybe someone walks up and talks to me or something will happen where like if you just literally go and put yourself somewhere unusual, it'll something will click. That's awesome. Yeah. So <laughs> the um, the name of this podcast is showing up. Mm -hmm. Can you give an example of a place or a story where that that means something to you? Well, I think in in all ways it means something to me. I mean, when I you know talk about giving advice to kids, I mean, that, or, or to young people, that's always one of the first things I say. Like showing up in a lot of ways. A, show up. If you tell someone you're going to be somewhere, be there 10 minutes early. Like th think that every person you're about to meet with is a football coach. If you're on time, you're late, right? And so you learn as you get older that that is rare. You know, being on time is rare. Turning a story in when it's due is rare. Mm. Being that person who people can trust and count on is rare. And that that alone will get you hired and, and have pe people coming back to you. Um, and, and I think showing up also means, um, not mailing it in, like showing up and being like your, your best self. If you're whatever work you're doing, I think showing up means, you know, I, you know, I don't really believe in writer's block. I believe in idea block or not knowing what you want to say, but if you just put your butt in the chair and, or, you know, spend the hours on the mountain or whatever it is you are going to get better at it. And so showing up means, you know, not being lazy, work outworking everyone. Like, I think that is, I love that it's the name of your podcast because I think it is the key to everything that if you literally, if you have a goal, that's how you achieve it is you just show up and you just work and you just do it and there's no magic to it. And there's no, you know, I watch people all the time 
try to find like what's the magic thing that made Michael Phelps who he is or who right, made yeah. what's this the cheat code? What's the yeah, like they'll interview his mom and it's like, okay, what's the is it his feet or his mm-hmm. feet bigger than everyone's feet? <laughs> and at the end of the day, every story, when you get down to it, is I spent more hours doing the thing I do than any other person in the world. And it's like, that's it. That's the magic. It's Just show up, jump in the pool and swim. Right. And so I think that's, yeah, I love that that's the name of this podcast because it's, yeah, it's the key to everything. Just show up, show up early. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Thank you so much for your time. I can't wait to watch you in the Olympics this year. Awesome. Thanks, Lindsay. Yeah, yeah. That was Alyssa Roenick, an amazing woman I'm honored to have take this time to sit down with. She wasn't so sure about sitting down with me, but at the end, she actually told me I'm a good interview, which coming from her means a lot. I'm Lindsay Dyer, and this has been Showing Up. I hope the show inspired you somehow today to show up for something you truly believe in. And as Alyssa said, don't just show up. Just don't be late. Until then, see you in the mountains, unicorns.